Good morning or good afternoon. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm a senior fellow in constitutional studies here at Cato. Uh, and today you are going to, in our wonderful seminar room here, get a master class on property rights. Four years ago, in Sackett versus EPA, Supreme Court unanimously rejected the Environmental Protection Agency's effort to deny judicial review of its determination that a rural lot where an Idaho couple was building their home was a federal wetland. The Army Corps of Engineers makes tens of thousands of similar wetlands determinations each year under the Clean Water Act. But it claims that Sackett doesn't apply because these determinations are legally different from the EPA's orders. Different agency, they use a different color of paper stock when they print out their orders and, and so forth. Uh, on March 30th, just in a couple of weeks, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in U.S. Army Corps of Engineers versus Hawks Company to decide whether landowners have access to court to challenge agency rulings that their property contains wetlands that are subject to federal regulation. While 30 states are now suing to overturn the newest Clean Water Act rules, expanding power over the so-called waters of the United States, invalidating that new rule won't change existing federal control over individual landowners if the agencies continue to assert similarly overbroad authority. What recourse do landowners have when federal agencies decide that private property contains wetlands? According to the Obama administration, landowners first must spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and many years seeking a permit from the same officials who may not have, uh, have had the proper regulatory authority to begin with. The Supreme Court rejected that approach in Sackett, and so a win for Hawks here would provide much broader relief from abusive agency rulings and procedures. Here to discuss uh, this case is Shawneen Werlinger, who is uh, an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is uh, bringing the case, as well as uh, my colleague Trevor Burris from Cato here, and Professor uh, Stephen Eagle of George Mason University Law School. Now, you might say, this looks like a stacked panel. Uh, all of us here seem to uh, like property rights and, and want uh, people asserting property rights to have their day in court. Well, we asked a lot of people who uh, could possibly be supporting the government's position here, and they all declined to appear, whether, uh, whether they're involved in, in public interest organizations, whether they're academics. Uh, we tried for weeks and weeks, uh, and uh, nobody would uh, defend the government. Coincidentally, the government did not receive any amicus briefs supporting their position either. Uh, whereas uh, the Hawks Company and PLF received how many amicus briefs? Sixteen. Sixteen. Uh, this is eerily reminiscent of what happened in Sackett, and so hopefully uh, the outcome at the Supreme Court will be similar as well. But before uh, we get into all that, let's actually uh, uh, step back and, and learn what the case is about. Uh, Shawneen Werlinger, as I said, is a legal fellow in Pacific Legal Foundation's DC Center. She previously was an appellate lawyer uh, here in Washington and clerked for the Honorable Edith Jones on the US Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which is the, the best circuit. Uh, before attending law school, uh, uh, Shanine com uh, competed internationally as a professional runner. I did not know that. I knew you ran. I didn't know you competed professionally. That's incredible. Um, she received a JD from University of Texas School of Law and a BA from Amherst.
Ilya, thank you for that introduction, and thank you to you and the Cato Institute for sponsoring this event today. One of the Pacific Legal Foundation's primary missions is to challenge regulations that exceed agencies' constitutional and statutory limits, especially when that overreach violates individual rights. To that end, Pacific Legal Foundation is frequently involved with protecting private property rights against agency abuse under the Clean Water Act. Today, I'm going to provide a general background on the Clean Water Act and how we got to where we are today with the Supreme Court case, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers versus Hawks that PLF is arguing later this month. Most of what I cover is in an issue brief I co-wrote with my PLF colleague, Damian Schiff, who won Sackett versus EPA, one of the Supreme Court cases I'm going to discuss. So let me begin with a description of the Clean Water Act. Congress passed the Clean Water Act in 1972 to protect the quality and integrity of our nation's navigable waters. The preamble to the act acknowledges the statute's scope is limited declaring that it's Congress's policy to recognize, preserve, and protect the primary responsibilities of the states to prevent, reduce, and eliminate pollution and use land and water resources. The act is jointly administrated by the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, known as the Corps. This is primarily done through a permitting mandate and under this mandate, a property owner must first obtain a special permit before discharging any pollutant, which you know, is not just a toxic chemical. It's defined so broadly to include such mundane materials as dirt and sand into navigable waters, which the act unhelpfully defines as waters of the United States. Over the years, the EPA and Corps have extravagantly expanded the scope of the Clean Water Act, conveniently increasing the amount of land they have power over. As I mentioned, the Clean Water Act applies to navigable waters or waters of the United States. Consistent with the traditional definition of navigable waters, the Corps' original regulations defined waters of the United States as interstate waters that are capable of being navigated for use in commerce, in other words, navigable in fact, or uh, traditional navigable waterways. Uh, for example, when I think of a navigable waterway, I think of something like the Mississippi River pictured on the left where you know, big, big boats can, can go through for commerce purposes. However, today, the EPA and Corps are likely to consider any moist ground, like a lot of ground around here after the recent rain we've had, like the pictured on the right, to fall within the ambit of the Clean Water Act. So how did we get from regulating big rivers like the Mississippi to damp ground in your backyard? In some ways, it began with an environmentalist lawsuit in which a federal district court ruled that the original regulations limiting the Clean Water Act scope to traditional navigable waterways was too narrow, and the court ordered the Corps to redo them. Rather than appeal that decision, 
the Corps decided to use that as an opportunity to pass substantially broader regulations. For example, they extended the Clean Water Act jurisdiction beyond waters that were actually navigable to include most small tributaries of those waters as well as adjacent wetlands. Property owners challenged that regulation, including the adjacent wetlands, all the way to the Supreme Court in a case called United States versus Riverside Bayview Home, Homes Incorporated. In that case, the Supreme Court affirmed that the Clean Water Act regulates at least some waters that wouldn't be considered navigable under the traditional definition of that, that term, including wetlands that were immediately adjacent to a navigable, in fact, water. Emboldened by their victory, the EPA and Corps proceeded to apply the act even more broadly. For example, the Corps adopted a so-called migratory bird rule, whereby it asserted power to regulate any pockets of rainwater that provided a habitat for migratory birds. This rule was challenged all the way to the Supreme Court in the case Solid Waste Agency of North Cook County, also known as SWANK, versus U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. This case involved several abandoned sand and gravel pits that, when filled with rainwater on occasion, were the perfect puddles for certain migratory birds. Here, the property owners prevailed, with the Supreme Court rejecting the migratory bird rule and reminding the Corps that the key statutory phrase, navigable waters, actually means something. Isolated interstate waters that are only navigable for birds don't count. Rather than retreat from their overbroad interpretations of this Clean Water Act, the Corps and EPA adopted a so-called hydrological connection theory that further expanded their jurisdiction to cover all wetlands so long as a single drop of water could theoretically travel from those waters to a navigable, in fact, water. The Pacific Legal Foundation challenged that theory all the way to the Supreme Court in the case Rapanos versus United States. John Rapanos was a Michigan landowner who wanted to develop his cornfields. Because he backfilled those fields by basically just putting dirt in the cornfields, the federal government sued him and sought substantial civil and criminal penalties. The government's rationale was that Rapanos's occasionally saturated cornfields were wetlands and therefore covered by the Clean Water Act because water could flow, flow from them through a series of ditches and streams all the way to a navigable, in fact, waterway located miles and miles away. In a fractured decision, the Supreme Court vacated the judgment against Rapanos and rejected the government's broad theory of jurisdiction. Um, the plurality of four justices uh, adopted a two-part standard, concluding that for tributaries, the Clean Water Act extends only to relatively permanent standing or continuously flowing bodies of water that are connected to a traditionally navigable waterway. And for wetlands, those must have a continuous surface connection with a traditionally navigable waterway. In other words, they have to be right, the water must be able to go from one directly to the other, um, or on the surface. Uh, Justice Kennedy provided the key vote in this case. Uh, while he agreed 
with the, con the overall conclusion, with the plurality, he disagreed with the reasoning. To him, the jurisdictional question depended on a concept of a significant nexus. Under this theory, a wetland has a significant nexus and is subject to the Clean Water Act when it significantly affects the physical, chemical, and biological integrity of downstream navigable waters. And it's important to note that all three of those criteria must be present. Unsurprisingly, the agencies responded to their defeat in Rapanos by further expanding their authority. Last summer, the Corps and EPA issued, issued a new Waters of the United States rule, also known as the WOTUS rule, that while purporting to merely conforming to the Rapanos decision, actually expands the jurisdiction even further. For example, it now covers dry creek beds, any water within 4,000 feet of a tributary, and even 100-year floodplains. Uh, the map on the screen shows one estimate of how much of California would be considered waters of the United States under the rule, but due to the complexities and ambiguities in the rule, no one really knows, and it's practically impossible to know what exactly um, is, is going to be covered. Essentially, this new rule allows agencies to control virtually every water and wetland in the country and micromanage the development of property located far from actual navigable waters. The Pacific Legal Foundation, along with dozens of states and private property, parties, filed suit challenging this rule. We argue that the rule's expansive power can't be reconciled with the text of the Clean Water Act or the Constitution. So far, two federal courts that have considered this challenge have stopped or enjoined the rule's application, concluding that PLF's clients and the other parties challenging the rule are likely to succeed on their claims. However, even if we prevail by invalidating the new Waters of the United States rule, the reality is it won't change federal control over individual landowners much in the short term. Knowing whether their property is subject to the Clean Water Act jurisdiction is extremely important for property owners. For one, the act imposes severe civil and criminal penalties to those who violate the act. Unfortunately, as Justice Alito recognized in a recent Supreme Court case, the reach of the Clean Water Act is notoriously unclear. For example, a recent official government report concluded that three core staff from the same district office were likely to make three different jurisdictional assessments over a particular property. Hence, obtaining independent judicial review of these jurisdictional calls issued in the form of compliance orders and jurisdictional determinations is crucial to protecting private property owners' rights. To that end, one of PLF's missions is to ensure that citizens have the right to a day in court whenever government agencies render final but disputed determinations that their property is regulated by the Clean Water Act. The first type of determination I'm going to cover are compliance orders. 
EPA issues a compliance order whenever the agency believes the Clean Water Act has been violated. These orders command immediate actions or fines of $37,000, $500 per day, or $75,000 for willful violations. Despite these draconian fines, the EPA argued that compliance orders weren't final agency action that could be challenged in court. Pacific Legal Foundation challenges view in Sackett versus EPA. This case involved an Idaho couple who received a compliance order shortly after beginning construction of their family home pictured in the screen. They believe that the order was void because their property where they were building this home did not contain any wetlands subject to the Clean Water Act. And as you can see, it doesn't look like something you would you know, typically associate as a wetland. The, nevertheless, all the lower courts agreed with the EPA that the Sacketts couldn't, con couldn't challenge the compliance order in court because it wasn't final agency action. Fortunately, the Supreme Court disagreed and in a unanimous 9-0 decision held that compliance orders create significant legal and practical effects by commanding recipients to take immediate action under threat of substantial liability. In a separate concurrence, Justice Alito foreshadowed the issue raised in our present Supreme Court case by emphasizing how landowners are at the mercy of agency officials whenever the agency asserts jurisdiction over their land under the Clean Water Act. And that brings us to jurisdictional determinations. So what are these jurisdictional, jurisdictional determinations? Because figuring out whether property is covered by the Clean Water Act is nearly impossible for a layperson, the Corps issues jurisdictional determinations to inform landowners whether their property contains wetlands or other covered waters subject to Clean Water Act regulations. Just like compliance orders, these carry important legal and practical consequences. They have substantial real-world consequences on the legal rights and obligations of landowners. They put landowners on notice of the course position, which is important for determining whether the property owner acts in good faith. For example, a recent Ninth Circuit uh, court case rebuked, uh, rebuked landowners for ignoring a course determination. If the court determines they have jurisdiction, the owner is effectively required to pursue a special permit to use the property. This permitting process is extremely long and expensive. The average applicant for an individual core permit spends 788 days and over $200,000 to complete the process. So that brings us to the case presently before the Supreme Court, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers versus Hawks. In this case, PLF represents three family-owned and operated companies that harvests and process high-quality peat for golf greens and sports fields. The Hawks would like to expand their peat processing operation to include 150 adjoining acres. Since peat is formed in wetlands and can only be formed in wetlands, it is important for Hawks to have assurance that it is not subject to federal Clean Water Act regulations. Rather, it's only uh, subject to all the Minnesota environmental laws and regulations. Following a years-long complex process, 
the Corps determined that the adjacent land was subject to the Clean Water Act because it had a significant nexus or impact on the Red River of the North that was located an incredible 120 miles away. Rather than allow a judge to consider the validity of this jurisdictional determination, the federal government claims that Hawks must first go through the expensive and time-consuming permitting process. Even though the Corps warned during those five years uh, that it was coming up with this determination, that in the end, it might not even issue a permit. This leaves Hawks with three options. One, it could go under, undergo that really long permitting process. Two, it could abandon the land with significant financial losses. Or three, they could use the land in, without a permit, but then they'd be risking those severe fines and criminal penalties. On behalf of Hawks, we at PLF argue that those options are absurd. It's crazy for a company to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for a permit that might not even be necessary. And this type of absurdity is not just limited to Hawks. There was a recent case that documented how one business spent seven years and millions of dollars seeking a permit only for the court to subsequently rule that the court never had jurisdiction over the property to begin with. Instead, we believe that Hawks should be able to go to court to challenge the Corps' jurisdictional determination. The Eighth Circuit agreed with us that the issuance of a jurisdictional determination is final agency action subject to judicial review. The Corps appealed, and the case is now about to be argued before the Supreme Court. Um, as Ilya mentioned in the introduction, we are very fortunate to have strong amicus support while no one filed in support of the government, we had over 60 entities, including 29 states and over 30 organizations, file briefs in support of Hawks. Um, I believe uh, next panelist is going to discuss Cato's uh, amicus brief that we're, we're very thankful of that focuses on the argument that courts should focus on the text of the Administrative Procedure Act, not judge-made common law when determining whether something is final agency action subject to judicial review. And um, since I'm running short of time, I'll just mention one other amicus brief that we had from the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence from the Claremont Institute. And that brief argued that prohibiting judicial review of these jurisdictional determination violates the, the Constitution's separation of powers by allowing the core to have legislative, executive, and judicial power all at the same time um, over the Clean Water Act. Uh, so with that, I'll turn it over to the next panelist to discuss. Thanks, Shaneen. I, I do have to issue one uh, dissenting uh, opinion on uh, uh, your presentation, PLF's position in this case generally, and that's that I firmly believe that PowerPoint is unconstitutional, <laughs> uh, at least as applied in about 90% of the cases. But um, um, Our next panelist is uh, my colleague Trevor Burris, and we thought about having Trevor play devil's advocate and uh, support the government in some way, but uh, we figured that uh, uh, that would be a little too facetious, and instead we should uh, delve uh, deeper into uh, the position that Cato has taken in, in our amicus brief. Uh, Cato's a, uh, Trevor is a re research fellow here at uh, Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, 
uh, and my right-hand man as the managing editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. His research interests include constitutional law, civil and criminal law, legal and political philosophy, and legal history. His academic work has appeared in journals such as the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty, and many others. Trevor lectures regularly on behalf of the Federalist Society, the Institute for Humane Studies, the Foundation for Economics, Education, and others. He's also the co-host of Free Thoughts, which is a weekly podcast I recommend uh, all of you to subscribe to, it's free, um, that covers topics in libertarian theory, history, and philosophy. It's, it's fascinating. He has very interesting guests on, so I commend that to you. Uh, Trevor's the editor of A Conspiracy Against Obamacare, holds a BA from the University of Colorado at Boulder and a JD from the University of Denver Sturm College of Law, so a Westerner with uh, his own perspective on, on property rights and, and federal meddling therein. Trevor. Thank you, Aaliyah. Um, I just found out from Shanine that the peat that apparently the Hawks Company was producing was for golf golf courses. Yeah, is that really nice? It wasn't for scotch, because I may, maybe I was on the wrong side of this case. I figured it was for scotch. Um, I want to thank PLF and uh, Todd and Shanine and, and Reed and Mark, who are the lawyers, uh, primary attorneys in this case. I want to thank Steve. I want to thank Frank Garrison back there, who's our legal intern, who did the uh, big part of the heavy lifting on our brief. Um, now, my remarks will be brief, because our brief is, in fact, brief. Uh, <clears throat> But I would like to put this case in a little bit of a broader context than this highly specific Clean Water Act element. Now, I'm, I'm thrilled that whenever I get into these property cases, I've become to relish them. But I remember my first very nuanced property case that I worked on at Cato. I felt like I was back in property class, which I didn't like that much, but I've become to love. So I'm thrilled that we can get this many people out here for a, a really high-level discussion of property rights. Uh, but I'm going to talk a little bit more about administrative law as a general, as a general concept. Now, I think probably most people here know or if you don't know, you can take it from me that Americans are increasingly living in an arbitrary, capricious, and despotic administrative state. Now, the interesting thing about explaining this to people, and I've lectured all over, and I've tried to explain many times what it's like to be a regulated entity. Most people don't actually know what it's like to be a regulated entity. They, they experience the effects indirectly. Unless you've ever had a business try to develop your land, uh, you probably never run into a US administrative agency. So try to explain what it means to live in those regulations requires us to take up some analogies. And that's a lot of what uh, we're dealing with in this case in terms of the kind of rulemakings that come down from things like the Army Corps of Engineers. So the best analogy I've been able to come up with is it's sort of, sort of like having a boss who stares at you very sternly and with piercing eyes and clearly means that he says, if you get out of line, you're going to be fired. You say, okay, and you want to comply with the rules about getting out of line, so you ask him to tell you what the line is and whether or not how you could know that you're inside of the line as opposed to getting out of it. And, you, and he would say something like, uh, well, I'm going to give you a guidance letter. It's going to say, any and all actions that negatively affect, change, alter, or influence the place of employment shall be construed as being out of line, to which the boss, at his discretion, may cite you for a first offense, and you are then on notice of which you can be fired afterwards. This is somewhat what it's like to be a regulated entity because now you have a sort of guidance, but it's not very good guidance about what you're doing. So the next thing you do, if any of you are actually lawyers here, and I suspect uh, that many of you probably are, uh, it's DC after all, but uh, if you're lawyers, what do you tell a client in the face of such vague rules is stay away from them. Now I first learned this from my dad who does banking law in, in uh, Colorado. 
and uh, he's been dealing with the FDIC and marijuana in the banks. If anyone knows how that's still going on, that the uh, banks can't, the, the uh, dispensaries cannot deposit money in banks, and the FDIC still won't clearly say what the rule is. But one of his clients was asking the FDIC if they could deposit marijuana money, and the FDIC said, we would look very strongly at that. Which if you know what that means, it means do not deposit money for marijuana dispensaries in a bank unless you want to lose it all possibly. So we look at these actions and we realize that with these kind of guidance letters, this is an increasing uh, type of regulation that we're seeing from administrative agencies. They're intentionally vague and they're intentionally meant to be possibly non-binding, binding, um, or at least they say they're non-binding, but practically they are binding. So we can be fairly said to be living right now in what's called, what can be called de Tocqueville's Nightmare, which is based off a very good book from uh, Daniel, da, Professor Daniel Ernst of Georgetown Law. Uh, Tocqueville wrote in the 1830s that America had centralized government, but it had very little in the way of centralized administration. And that was a good thing because he wrote that if such a centralized administration came to exist, then that, in that country it would be a more insufferable despotism would prevail than any which now exists in the monarchical states of Europe, or indeed than any which could be found on this side of the confines of Asia. The Administrative Procedure Act was passed in 1946, partially in response to the New Deal and the alphabet soup of agencies that came out in the New Deal as an attempt to provide, in the words of Senator Pat McCarran, who was a then senator, a bill of rights for the hundreds of thousands of Americans whose affairs are controlled or regulated by federal government agencies. And so pursuant to that, there is a strong presumption that you can challenge in court actions made under the APA. So now the question we have to ask is when you have these guidance letters, like my, my hypothetical boss, how do you challenge these guidance letters? Well, let me give you an example of one of these guidance letters that I pulled up. It's an FDA guidance letter issued in 2007 called A Guide to Minimize Microbial Food Safety Hazards of Fresh Cut Fruits and Vegetables. It's a, it's a bestseller. I highly suggest it. It begins like this. This guidance represents the FDA's current thinking on this topic. It does not create or confer any rights for or on any person. It does not operate to bind the FDA or the public. But we're still going to tell you what you should do. Now, agencies do this a lot now. Why do they do this? Because it's very difficult to challenge these non-binding regulations. And why is it these non-binding regulations? And why is it difficult to challenge these non-binding regulations? Well, because of a case called Bennett v. Speer, which came out in 1997. Now, for going back to the FDA regulation, the FDA has jurisdiction over, this is from the statute, raw agricultural commodity that's been subject to processing, such as canning, cooking, freezing, dehydration, or milling. Now they're claiming in this letter to have jurisdiction over cutting of pineapples and bagging of salad. So if you happen to be an agency that cuts pineapples and bags salad, you might want to challenge the jurisdictional determination, which is essentially what that is, of the FDA, but you probably can't because of this case Bennett. Now Bennett requires you to satisfy two prongs in order to challenge something under the Administrative Procedure Act. The first one is that the decision, the guidance letter in this situation, or the jurisdictional determination in Hawks must be the consummation of the agency's decision-making process. And the second one, it must be one by which rights or obligations have been determined or from which legal consequences flow. Now, the second prong is the difficult part. Because of the weasel words in a, a regulation like the one I read, that says this is not actually law, you, it's kind of a suggestion, and you're not going to actually have to comply with it. Because of those words, courts have been trying to deal with what it means to say that it has rights or obligations that have been determined and from which legal consequences flow. So now we have a problem. The problem essentially is, 
is that courts in different ways are trying to conflate these two, uh, these two prongs uh, to say essentially that a person cannot challenge anything that is not a, it's called a legislative rule. And agencies in reaction to that have passed more and more guidance letters in order to determine the rights and, complica uh, rights and obligations of people, which are non-binding and so avoid, gets them to avoid judicial review. Now, in Hawks, we see a very similar thing. In Hawks, and I'm quoting from the merits brief in this, the, ju the preliminary jurisdictional determinations do not reflect, this is, the this is the Army, a final conclusion about whether the waters of the United States are present. The preliminary jurisdictional determination are advisory in nature and may not be appealed. Again, you see the weasel words in here that say, we're not totally saying this is true, but this is true. The problem with the Bennett prong two, which is what our brief discusses, is that it adds the second layer that can avoid judicial review because the courts, some courts have said that those weasel words mean that you cannot challenge the action. Now, for example, in a case um, in 2006 called Center for Auto Safety v. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, the D.C. Circuit held that a, the Center for Auto Safety could not challenge an NHTSA rule because it said the word in general, it is not appropriate for the manufacturer, blah, 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 blah. But it was this word in general that created non-binding words, so it was just advising them. Of course, it wasn't actually advising them, as we all know, but it was just advising them, so it seemed that rights and consequences and legal obligations did not flow from this. Now, this again, we see this. What we see would be a much simpler way of doing this. We basically added a second step to the APA. Now, if you remember, the APA was passed to be a Bill of Rights for all Americans who labor under the administrative agencies, which is all Americans in some way, but we're increasingly impossible to challenge these actions because these agencies are using preliminary determinations, non-biting guidance letters, and things like this, as opposed to good old-fashioned notice and comment rulemaking, which by itself has plenty of problems, but guidance letters are becoming more and more common. And so we could, what we advocate in our brief is to return simply to the APA's text, we don't need another step where we try and determine whether or not rights and consequences will follow, legal obligations will follow from this. What we merely need is to look at the language of the APA and decide whether or not it is, this is the language of the APA. An agency action is made reviewable by statute and a final agency action for which there is no other adequate remedy in a court. So we have to define what an agency action is. An agency action in the APA is defined as it's very broad, the whole or part of an agency rule, order, license, sanction, relief, or the equivalent or denial thereof. Clearly, in this case, a jurisdictional determination is made, satisfies that it's an agency action. Then we have to decide if it's a final agency action, which has been in step one. Was it the consummation of the agency's thinking? Now, in this case, the government has conceded that it's the consummation of the agency's thinking, so it satisfies been at step one. And so that's where we are now in terms of asking the question that is before us, whether or not this is reviewable by court. What we advocate in our brief is that the court should go further and it should overturn step two of the Bennett analysis, which produces this bizarre situation that encourages agencies to write non-binding and very weasel-wordy regulations and then prevents some people in many situations from being able to challenge them in court. So of course, Hawks should win. I think they will win, but the question is whether they can win. Maybe we can win in such a way that we can actually return some amount of semblance of reason to our administrative state. Thank you very much. Thanks, Trevor. I learned uh, one thing even now about our brief and about the, the Bennett rule, and that's, I don't know if all of you caught it, but um, step one of Bennett is that when the 
agency finishes regulating you, that uh, constitutes the consummation of the agency's decision-making process. Think about that, right? All right. Um, Professor Stephen Eagle uh, came to George Mason University Law School in 1987 uh, and has also taught at the law schools of Vanderbilt, University of Toledo, and Pace University. He earned his uh, BBA from the City College of New York and his JD from Yale. Uh, Professor Eagle teaches the first-year property law class at George Mason, as well as land use planning and an advanced constitutional law seminar on property rights. I doubt there are too many law schools in the country that have advanced uh, seminars on property rights. Uh, he plays an important role in the ongoing dialogue among American legal scholars, loyal, uh, lawyers, and judges on the proper interpretation of property rights under the Constitution, and is the author of a leading property treatise and scholarly and popular articles. Most notably, he will be writing about this case, uh, Hawks, for the Cato Supreme Court review that'll come out this fall on Constitution Day in September. Professor Eagle. Thank you, Ilya. It's a pleasure to be back here at Cato. Um, you've heard uh, a lot about the background of the Clean Water Act and Hawks. And what I'm going to try to do primarily is to tie this litigation into some broader themes. The first of which is the idea of the rule of law, which is to say uh, people should be ruled by the law and generally obey it. The law should be reasonably stable. It should rule all, including legislators and judges. And it should be impartially enforced through fair procedures. But the most important element is that people must be able to understand and comply with the law. And on this last point, in his uh, 1989 article, The Rule of Law as a Law of Rules, the late Justice Antonin Scalia took up the, quote, dichotomy between the general rule of law and personal discretion to do justice. He added, statutes that are seen as establishing rules of inadequate clarity or precision are criticized on that account as anti-democratic and in, extreme, in the extreme unconstitutional because they leave too much to be decided by persons other than the people's representatives. And all of this, of course, brings me to the Clean Water Act and to navigable waters of the United States, which I may inadvertently walk on from time to time without even realizing it. <laughs> As the Supreme Court observed in the Riverside Bayview case, which is mentioned before, uh, the continuum from solid land to open seas, uh, that is to say, which are wetlands, is, quote, far from obvious, far from obvious. And as uh, Judge Kelly said in his uh, concurring opinion in Hawks in the Eighth Circuit, the uh, a court in Sackett versus EPA was concerned with just how difficult and confusing it can be for a landowner to predict whether or not his land falls within Clean Water Act jurisdiction, a threshold determination that puts the administrative process in motion. It is a unique aspect of the Clean Water Act 
Most laws do not require the hiring of expert consultants to determine if they even apply to you or your property. Since 1985, uh, in cases dealing with such matters as intermittent flows and drainage ditches, and yes, birds stopping for a drink here and there under names known to aficionados of this subject, uh, such uh, as uh, Swank and Rapanos, uh, there has been a lot more written, but unfortunately, not more clarity. And the question for me, therefore, from a broad perspective, is what should the Supreme Court do when property rights are not clearly defined and where government has the upper hand? And I want to discuss this question as it pertains to Hawk uh, from the perspective of the Supreme Court's property rights jurisprudence more generally. And I am pleased to say that in recent years, the court has shown a fresh awareness of the problems of landowners confronted by the state in a number of promising contexts. The two big cases in this regard are Kuntz versus St. John's River Water Management District in 2013, and the Supreme Court's procedural and subsequent merits opinions in Horn versus Department of Agriculture, 2013 and 2015. In Kuntz, the court held that the denial of a development permit because the owner wouldn't agree to very stringent wetlands mitigation demands could constitute an unreasonable burden on takings clause rights. But listen to Justice Alito's explanation for the court. So long as the building permit is more valuable than any just compensation the owner could hope to receive for the right of way, the owner is likely to accede to the government's demand no matter how unreasonable. Extortionate demands of this sort, he continued, frustrate the Fifth Amendment right to just compensation and the unconstitutional conditions doctrine prohibits them. Likewise, in the Horn case, uh, Justice Roberts found that the appropriation by government of raisins uh, was a per se taking. And he extended the categorical rule that physical appropriations were, in fact, per se takings from real property to now include personal property. And again, Chief Justice Roberts' tone reflected a pragmatic understanding of the situation. He wrote that selling produce in interstate commerce was, quote, not a special government benefit, and that the government that the government uh, may hold hostage to be ransomed by the waiver of constitutional protection. Pretty strong language, and that language was that language followed Justice Scalia's uh, admonition in Nolan versus uh, California Coastal Commission that the right to build on one's own property even though its exercise can be subjected to legitimate permitting requirements, cannot remotely be described as a government benefit. In Sackett, uh, the case which is most, I think, directly pertaining to Hawks, the court held that the EPA compliance order was the culmination of decision-making and had the consequence of potentially draconian consequences for its violation. And echoing Horn and Kuntz, 
about extortion and ransoming, Justice Scalia added in Sackett, there is no reason to think that the Clean Water Act was uniquely designed to enable the strong arming of regulated parties into, quote, voluntary compliance, close quote, without the opportunity for judicial review. Even judicial review of the question of whether the regulated party is within the EPA's jurisdiction. And in a concurring opinion, uh, Justice Alito warned even more strongly uh, that the federal government's uh, position, as said before, would place the property of ordinary Americans entirely at the mercy of EPA employees. Now, I believe that Hawks follows directly from these points. Judge Loken in the Eighth Circuit disagreed with the district court's reasoning that, unlike in Sackett, appellants face no such obligations or changes in their rights as a result of the jurisdictional determination. Uh, Judge Loken reasoned that the government's view privileging the status quo seriously understates the impact of the regulatory action at issue by exaggerating the distinction between the agency order that compels affirmative action and an order that prohibits a party from taking otherwise lawful action. Uh, now, the revised uh, uh, judicial, uh, uh, jurisdictional determination requires appellants to either forego substantial compliance costs, which is to say the permitting process, forego what they assert is lawful use of their property, which I think really is a key, or risk substantial enforcement penalties. Uh, again, uh, just, uh, Chief Justice Roberts in the Horn case, remember, said that you have a right to be in business. Government does not give you that right to be in business, although he could regulate you. So, uh, now on the other hand, in Bell versus uh, Bell Company versus Army Corps of Engineers, a Fifth Circuit decision, is it our favorite circuit still? Uh, <laughs> after Sackett, said that any obligations upon the landowners derive from the Clean Water Act and not from the jurisdictional determination. And this is an important difference that the government is emphasizing, that in fact the, the uh, jurisdictional determination is just an opinion just what the government thinks. No independent legal consequences flow from that opinion. That's, that's their, their argument. Uh, and, and this is literally true, although there are some caveats. For instance, uh, obviously, if the, if the uh, EPA or the Corps warns you about doing something, it's harder to show you did it innocently if you're later found to have uh, broken the rule. So there are consequences, but, but it's not technically the, uh, the uh, ju jurisdictional determination as such that creates the, the issue. And uh, so let's, let's talk about some other cases, I think, that reflect this problem. In the first Horn case decided in 2013, the Supreme Court struck a blow against circuitous requirements for property rights adjudication by concluding that the Horns, the raisin uh, producers, could assert their takings claim in the U.S. District Court as an affirmative defense for fines levied against them without having to first pay the fines in the district court and then sue for a refund in the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. Some of you may be familiar with the Tucker Act shuffle, which, which 
basically makes uh, property owners at their peril, litigate in both courts, maybe with preclusive effect of one determination affecting the other. Anyway, this is a way of starting to cut through all of that. And uh, uh, so uh, beyond these technical aspects of the case, Justice Thomas' opinion for the court contains strong language appealing to common sense. In the case of an administrative enforcement proceeding, when a party raises a constitutional defense to an asserted, to an assessed fine, it would make little sense to require the party to pay the fine in one proceeding and then to turn around and sue for recovery of the same money in another proceeding. Likewise, the government can, uh, is asserting in Hawks that the approved JD is nothing more than the core's opinion, as Trevor was emphasizing before, and not as such prejudicial to any permit application that the Hawks subsequently file. Uh, uh, that they'll look at that afresh and not necessarily follow what they told them a, a, a months ago. Uh, they will not give undue attention to their own words and are judging the case. So you can imagine how that works out. Uh, and uh, that the uh, JD, they say, is one step in a process that will only be over when the administrative appeals are to a denial are unsuccessful. So in effect, what they're doing is saying that the core's action is one black box. Everything the core does is within that black box, and it's only when you get the result at the very, very end of the process that you have a, a, a right to, to appeal. And as, as both previous speakers have pointed out, uh, there's a tremendous amount of time and money involved. A, uh, certainly an appraisal affidavit filed uh, as, uh, by an amicus in this case uh, showed the obvious fact that there's a tremendous loss in value of property when this, this sort of Damocles is hanging over the owner. Loss of value, the government says that too is only an opinion. <laughs> so there we are. And this, is a, this black box notion is very similar to what the government does with property rights in a regulatory takings context generally. In Penn Central Transportation Company versus City of New York, the court talked about relevant parcel, and government always tries to define relevant parcel as largely as possible so as to dilute the effect of the regulation on the landowner. Well, maybe here too we see some light. Next term, the court is going to hear Murr versus Wisconsin, a case where relevant parcel finally is going to be challenged. Uh, this government proclivity to lump a whole bunch of stuff together to say that, well, your loss is only a small part of it is look, finally going to be re reviewed. Yet another good omen in California Building Association versus City of San Jose, where we found the California Supreme Court said that if uh, a developer is required to sell 15% of new housing at far below market prices to those affordable housing buyers designated by the government. That's, the California Supreme Court says, only a normal land use regulation. Exaction, no way. Uh, 
the Supreme Court two weeks ago denied cert in that case on technical grounds, but Justice Thomas again powerfully said that this question of whether local legislatures as well as administrators can impose unconstitutional exactions remain on the table. Uh, the recent death of, Chief, of Justice Scalia, of course, gives us pause in looking at the court's future trajectory, but Horn was an 8-1 decision, Sackett was unanimous. Hawks, I think, would be a very modest extension of the Sackett case, and we'll see how it goes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we'll turn shortly to questions. I'll see if the panelists have any uh, further thoughts. Um, I will note that uh, if anyone's uh, watching at home and wants to tweet some questions to me, my Twitter handle is at iShapiro. For that matter, if any of you here want to you know, anonymously or, or you know, submit a question by Twitter rather than asking one person, you can do that as well, I suppose. Um, Please wait to be called on, uh, uh, wait for the microphone, and uh, actually uh, identify yourself and any institution you're affiliated with and actually ask a question. Those are our ground rules. Now, as you start thinking about that, uh, Shanine, do you want to say anything uh, in response to what uh, Trevor and Steve had to say? Um, I appreciate everything that they said, and I was just going to add a few more facts about the case, um, Professor Eagle mentioned the, the high cost um, here for Hawks. Um, They're told it would cost $100,000 just for the preliminary assessment um, to go through the permitting process just to have um, an idea of what kind of costs uh, they'd be running up against. And um, yeah, as, as Trevor mentioned about the whole preliminary determination in this case, um, there was a lot of back and forth uh, with the core um, initially coming up with a preliminary determination and then revising it and then coming up with a new one. And again, just having to deal with this current system, it was five years of, of back and forth Hawks had to go through to get where they are today. And they still have uh, three completely unreasonable options in our opinion, uh, which is why we believe they have the right to go to court to challenge uh, the jurisdictional determination. And I feel like, uh, so the Murr case that Steve mentioned is also a PLF case. And I also think it's worth uh, plugging PLF here because these kind of cases and how long it takes to bring these with a, with a, a nonprofit law firm on your side, as opposed to most people wouldn't stick it out. And since PLF is litigating for principle, like they've been bringing how many cases now, Todd? Do you know to the Supreme Court in the last 10 years? Uh, this seven would, or eight? This would be nine. Nine. And then they're holding the Fifth Circuit. Yeah, so, and so it, most people would not stick it out. So we have to thank PLF for doing this. I would uh, like to add uh, two things. First, uh, as far as PLF is concerned, uh, Professional developers will do one project after another in a given community. They have every practical incentive to go along and get along and pay whatever bite is required by the government and simply regard that as a cost of doing business they will put on to their, their uh, uh, in, to the buyers of their development projects. Individuals, on the other hand, for whom this is a one-shot deal, are far more aggrieved, but most individuals cannot afford to do anything with that grievance, and that's where organizations like 
PLF come in. The other thing I wanted to mention is that the Army Corps of Engineers and the government generally says, you know, uh, we're doing these uh, JDs out of the goodness of our heart. We don't have to do them. This is just some gratuitous advice we're giving you about your rights. Uh, if it becomes too onerous to do this kind of stuff, we're not going to be Mr. Nice Guy anymore. We're not going to do it. <laughs> All right, we have a question right in the back there. Wait for the microphone. Thanks a lot. Very interesting. Very interesting presentation from all of you. I was not. I had a hand in one of the amicus briefs here, but I was not previously aware of the Cato position. Uh, and it seems to me that, um, you know, whether step two should be uh, dispensed with step two of the Bennett against Spears test is a little bit academic. I mean, no agency regulation is self-executing, right? And so to say that a regulation or an agency action has legal effect, what it really means is that it empowers the agency to do something. Here, the JDs, uh, I would argue, do have legal effect. They allow EPA to, say, to, to rule one way. You know, they allow EPA to come in and deny a permit. And so it, it seems to me to be a matter of degree about whether you say that that step in the test is gone or just to reformulate the way you think about what legal effect is. It's a legal effect in giving the agency the power to do something. Well, the, so the point being is that, <clears throat> so the government has made a sort of a point on this, as Steve was saying, a lot of their point has been that there is no independent legal effect to the juror. This is just our opinion. Now, the reason they've said this is because the Bennett analysis <clears throat> and other uh, subsequent cases to Bennett have encouraged agencies to write these sort of vague regulations. And what the, what now you basically have done is you have what's essentially a ripeness kind of situation where this prong two is kind of like a ripeness. Like, is there actually something going on uh, in this situation? Are you actually having some sort of adverse consequences from this? But what it means is that the courts are not be able to figure out whether or not that means they have to look at whether or not it's a, a legislative rule or a non-legislative rule. Because, because uh, not necessarily in this case as much, I think that this is quite obvious, the consequences that flow from it, but in other cases, the consequences are not clear. Like I said, in, in this one uh, DC Circuit case, which is pretty much the controlling one for DC Circuit, which of course is massively important, uh, just the words like in general throughout the regulation had them hold that it was not a legislative rule. Um, even though it was binding, it was just it didn't have legal consequences that are independent uh, in that situation. So uh, it, it's, it is part of this case, um, and definitely in, in many ways. Yeah, I'm uh, Pat Spann, just myself, and. Uh, I'm curious on the, the panel's um, understanding of uh, what's driving the EPA and CORE. Is it just you know, the, the natural desire for the bureaucracies, as a retired government worker, I understand that, retired of the bureaucracies to gain control? Or is there some sort of um, ideology or philosophy uh, behind it? I mean, are they all a bunch of socialists and want to take all our lands? I, I mean, I, I have inherited the family farm in upstate New York, and I'm very sensitive about... Uh, um, what becomes the, what the government can say I can do with my land? Well, I, I think that it is an ideology. I mean, it's in some sort of environmentalism ideology. But, it, I mean, it's not an absurd argument that they have to say that we can't really do our job if we conceive our job as 
cleaning the waters of the United States or maintaining a certain level of cleanliness if we don't have control over certain things that are needed to do that job fully, basically. So there, if there's holes in our jurisdiction, we could swallow the rule. So they need to protect their jurisdiction in order to make sure they think what they conceive of their job to do it. I think their argument is really the same as government's resistance generally to interlocutory appeals because they say, well, let's see how things shake out. Maybe uh, you get the permit without much trouble, without much expense. We'll see. Uh, and it's certainly expensive to go through this litigation, which conceivably might be unnecessary. What they're doing, of course, is looking at it from a perspective where they think they're supposed to enforce a certain rule. They're going to do so at least fulsomely from their perspective. And anything that, that creates difficulties or expense in doing that is something they want to incur discourage. So I think this is just usually the way government responds to these kinds of things where people are challenging things before they're over merely because individuals are suffering in the meantime. Yeah, I, I agree with both of those points. And I guess uh, to be generous to those in gov government employees, I think a lot of people go into government work because they're generally you know, do-goer, um, good doer type people who want to go out and save the environment. And I think that they might not realize that the federal government is not the only entity that cares about the environment, that there are you know, states and local governments and local people who also have a very strong interest in you know, keeping water clean. And so that when they go into this uh, profession, they want to do as much as they individually can um, without ceding that power to others. There's actually a related question that just came in on Twitter from Shawington Times, who says that he or she is more progressive than Dems and more conservative than GOPers, cat and tree hugger. Anyway, Shawington Times asks, who protects the environment and public health and safety without the EPA? Kind of a, a pointed question, I suppose. <laughs> Anyone want to expand upon what we just said? Uh, yes. <clears throat> A few years ago, it was my pleasure to be invited to debate at the University of Georgia on the subject, uh, uh, <clears throat> the environment, private property rights versus the public interest. Well, at least they had a, 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 a neutral title there, right? So, so I, uh, I, of course, I took the property rights side, and it really, and, and the, it really is hard for people who are urbanites who are very into uh, environmental protection, to understand the ethos of people in large parts of the country, particularly in the West, where there is such a thing as environmental stewardship, where landowners do try, uh, partly for economic reasons, to make their conserve their resource, but also because of personal satisfaction and family ties with the land, uh, to do things to, to ensure the, uh, good conservation and good practices. Uh, the Political Economy Research Center and the Foundation for uh, uh, Research and Economics and the Environment, both in Bozeman, Montana, for instance, have done a lot of work on this. The uh, uh, Rocky Mountain Land Institute has done a lot of work on this. So there re really are a lot of people out there from a non-governmental perspective who are trying their best to preserve the environment, but this often gets lost in the shuffle. Um, I just would add that 
clearly um, the libertarian position on this is something like, it's, it's very obviously the question's attacking, but some things are easy to own and some things aren't easy to own. So a really good way of conserving elephants, for example, is to allow for private rights and elephants and allow people to kill Cecil the lion, for example, and we can have more lions and elephants. Now, air is a difficult question by itself, but I would also submit that what has cleaned the air more than the EPA ever could has been the increasing wealth of Americans and not the EPA by itself. Todd Gaziano from the Pacific Legal Foundation. And, and I, I thought that uh, Trevor's analogy to the guidance was excellent, but I wanted to, to mention one of the specific facts regarding the jurisdictional determinations that, that Professor uh, Eagle, I think, may have misstated. According to the Corps' regulations, and I wish I could cite the actual CFR, but it's in our uh, brief that my colleagues have filed, um, once the final jurisdictional determination by the Corps is issued, it is final and no further Corps official can question it. Now, what the Corps says it would be open to is whether to grant the permit anyway, whether to extract certain price, or maybe that price wouldn't be bankrupting to the to the to, to the landowner. But um, assuming I'm right, and I'm pretty sure I'm right, that their regulations say that no further agency official is entitled to reconsider their jurisdictional determination. Doesn't that make it even a stronger case for finality and and that? the landowner shouldn't have to go through the permitting uh, process uh, to get a ruling on it. Uh, now, again, I'd have to go back and check this, but I recall in the Sackett case, the, the argument came up that theoretically, the court could go back and revisit its determination, but the court in Sackett gave that very little shrift, saying, well, yeah, this is just a theoretical possibility, but really, the court cannot say it's not final because of that. There's another question on Twitter, and this one I'll take. It's a very short uh, question. Andrew Boswell, who is a private uh, environmental consultant in Texas, asks, how long is a case like this argued typically? Um, well, if, it's, if, if you're asking, Andrew, just about the Supreme Court, um, each side will get uh, half an hour. Um, I don't know if there are any special provisions in, in this case that have been made for that. Yeah, so. Um, it's been five years, I believe. Right, but if the, the, the total litigation, how long has the total litigation lasted? Uh, it's been years at this point. Seven? 2008, Right, so by the, you know, the Supreme Court is the, is the tip of the iceberg and probably, uh, ironically, costs much less and takes much less time than, than anything uh, preceding it. But the, the case is going to be argued. Uh, uh, during the course of one hour on March 30th, and we'll have a, an opinion by the end of June. Oh, ma'am, right here. Yeah. The Horn case took 12 years. Hi, uh, Virginia Albrecht, Hunton and Williams. Responding to Todd's point, <laughs> um, the guidance documents and the regs say that an approved jurisdictional determination, which is what Hawks got, is binding on the government. It's binding for five years and can be relied upon by the landowner and will be defended by the government in any subsequent litigation for f up to five years. So it's, uh, you're it's right. 
Well, no, but I mean, in a negative jurisdictional, there's no difference in that. And, and so on their own terms, it says this is a binding, this, this determination by the government, when we go out and we walk around on your land and we figure out this part is jurisdictional and that part isn't, that is binding on the government. Uh, well, two things. First, if I'm not mistaken, it's not binding on private parties like neighbors. And, and second, and, and, and second uh, if government chooses to relent, uh, is the landowner going to say, no, you can't because it's binding on you? <laughs> sure, if you want to follow up, sure. We have time. The, the only reason this is important uh, is that the government is basically saying, hey, this is an opinion. This is just sort of a salutary administrative practice that we do do out of the goodness of our heart, and it won't be binding on us, And which, in fact, under their own guidance documents and everything else, yeah, is yeah. not true about how this is used. Once an AJD is issued, it is binding on the government, and then they use that when they're determining whether or not to issue a permit or what the terms and conditions of a permit would be. But that's, that is, that's, the, that's prong one of Bennett, not prong two. But I'm not, I'm just yeah, yeah. saying yeah. Well, the I think consequences. This, this also shows why the government is the appellate in this case. I mean, they, they, another reason why I think they will lose. I mean, they always try to reinterpret their own Inter their own regs within a kind of skid more hour type of thing and say this is not really binding on us. But it's all, it's all, I mean, as you say, it's, it's clearly uh, some sort of sleight of hand. Here. Just a reminder, if you want to tweet at me, at iShapiro, if you have any questions. Uh, my name's Devin Watkins. Um, I want to ask a question more generally about these kind of vague, we don't know whether or not this will be, uh, but we think it might be the, in this. Um, you know, the old way of doing it where we had a strong rule of lenity where if a person didn't know whether or not they were breaking the law, criminal violations, that it would naturally go against the individual. If we had a much stronger version of the rule of lenity, would it necessarily matter whether or not these things are not binding if it was just assumed that it's not going to go in the government's favor in the end until they make that, are able to actually say whether or not you're breaking the law if you do this? Well, a rule of lenity would help in matters that are criminal. Um, whether there are criminal sanctions, which is a fair amount of the administrative code. Sometimes it's not clear whether there are criminal sanctions. Uh, but also, the rule of lenity only helps to stay that once you get into court, you'll have this construed in your favor. But of course, the most important things that administrative regulations do is they help keep people out of court. I mean, you want, you, want to, you want to talk about the behavior of people before they get into court. It'll help you after you get into court. It maybe helps some of your behavior beforehand. But if you know if you're constantly going to court and you're invoking the rule then there's something wrong with the rule itself that's a problem. Yeah, I just, I, I, I wanted to emphasize, and this is why I brought up cases like Kuntz, that to me, a very important part of this is once you get beyond uh, this quibbling of whether the government is saying so and not really saying so and whether it has an impact or doesn't really have an impact. Once you get beyond those legalisms, as important as they are, it's vital that the court recognize the dynamic between the parties, that government is not raising this stuff for its own sake, but government rather is raising this stuff to leverage it, to, to, to have power over the landowner to 
in effect force the landowner to to do what it wishes despite or maybe even because of the lack of clarity in the law and once the court is on to that if it can get the lower courts to appreciate that more thoroughly uh, i think you'll see a big difference in the way that property rights regulation generally is treated and yeah, well, one final point on that too is that one of the many things we lost with Justice Scalia was his increasing turn against our deference, which is just another type of... That's um, A-U-E-R, not like Cato's yeah. deference. <laughs> uh, which he had written himself and was going against to saying that these agencies are just trying to wield power, uh, will interpret any of their own regs any the way they want to. If they don't like how it is, they'll say it's not actually binding on us. It just, it's like, how long are you going to go down this before you realize they're just sort of despots with... Uh, with the shovels and a, a law book behind them. So. And I just want to add that in order for the rule of lenity to apply, you have to be in court to begin with for a judge to be able to even apply that. So I think that's um, why it's so important that property owners have the right to immediately go to court in order to challenge these jurisdictional determinations. But And finally, one last point on this. I made the point about the rule of law. The obligation of people to know the law is dependent upon the law being knowable, the law being clear. If the law is not clear, it's a subversion of due process to say someone's responsible for obeying it. All right, everything is clear apparently, so let's thank our panel. <laughs>